Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Our Father, we're so grateful uh, to come to your word once again, and we do pray that we would get a good vision of Jesus this morning. And I just pray, Lord, that as we open your word here, that you would work mightily through the power of your Holy Spirit, that our minds, our lives, our hearts might be transformed by your power for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I did a Google search on the most powerful institutions in the world. And one name that I wasn't expecting at the top of the results was the Federal Reserve Board. But after thinking about it, you know, the decisions they make uh, have vast implications for buying and selling and impact greatly the life here not only in America, but across the world. There were other economic organizations on that list as well, and certainly a contender for the most powerful institution is the United States military or the military of any number of the so-called superpowers, nations that could destroy the world several times over. But one, nation, one institution I did not see in the Google results was the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. The power of all these other institutions have this limitation in common. They can only affect the affairs of this life. The scope of their power is only relevant in our present age. But as we'll see in today's passage, Christ has empowered his church to affect not only the affairs of this life, which may seem insignificant to the collators of Google results, but infinitely more important, the church has been empowered to affect the affairs in the life to come. The, its influence and proclamations can determine our destiny in eternity. And there's nothing more powerful than that. But before we go there, let's consider number one in your outline. Hopefully you can follow along in your bulletin. The predictable condemnation. I'm going to start reading back in verse 1 of chapter 16, and I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles as I do so. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, <clears throat> and to test him, that is Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be a stormy day today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how, how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. <clears throat> you may have heard the old saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's sort of what's happening here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two groups are very different in their understanding of Judaism, and they were generally opposed to each other. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural, angels, demons. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that the Roman government should be resisted. 
The Sadducees basically had the opposite belief on every one of those issues. So there's a strange alliance here in these verses, but because despite all their differences, they found something they had in common. They both hated Jesus. And the reason they hated him is that Jesus threatened their status, among other things. He posed a serious challenge to their authority and their standing among the people. As we saw earlier, the Pharisees had been demanding signs since back in chapter 12, where they had already judged him and were devising ways to kill him. So, so this request is not in good faith. Jesus always met people where they were at. If they had genuine questions, this is not a genuine question. They've seen him perform countless healings and exorcisms, which they claim were demonic. Jesus had just previously fed about 15,000 people, including women and children, with seven loaves and a few fish. They refused to recognize what should be obvious to them. How many signs do they want? Jesus answers them by pointing this out. They can discern less important things like the weather, but they can't discern this unique time in salvation history. They cannot discern that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. The kingdom promised beforehand had come upon them. Craig Blomberg explains as clouds move from west to east, sunlight will tint the clouds in the morning, signaling that rain is coming. But in the evening, that same phenomenon suggests the clouds have almost disappeared, bringing good weather. Instead, you may have heard this in a rhyme. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Jesus' point is that they can understand these less important signs, but because they're closed to God's work in him, they're unable to perceive the dawning of the kingdom of God. So the only sign left for them is the sign of Jonah. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees earlier in chapter 12. Jonah didn't do any wonders. He just showed up with a message of judgment after three nights in the belly of the fish. Likewise, Jesus will show up in the resurrection after three nights in the belly of the earth, and that will be the definitive sign that he is from God and will judge those who refuse to repent. Nothing would convince them because their heart's desire was so strongly against Jesus. This isn't an intellectual problem. It is a moral one. They will not believe because they do not want to believe. It's the same today with many unbelievers. It may mystify us at times when people do not believe. Loved ones that will not believe. Jesus was careful to discern the honest seeker with questions versus someone resolute in their unbelief who may ask questions, but they're not asked in good faith because they don't want to believe. Like these groups, they have too much to lose if, in fact, Jesus is Lord. So unless the Lord changes their heart, no evidence will be enough. Davies and Allison say it well, Seeing is not believing. If the Sadducees and Pharisees of our story were not persuaded by Jesus, neither would they have been won over by a spectacular sign from heaven. The truth is that one does not see until one believes. So 
end of verse 4, Jesus left them and departed. Now, this departing was the final and most important withdrawal of Jesus from Galilee before his final trip south to Jerusalem. Mark adds at this point in his account that Jesus sighed deeply as he departed. As Carson notes, Jesus' withdrawal from this region is not just geographical. It is emotional, and it is judicial. He sighs as he leaves because these are the very people who should have recognized him from their own Hebrew scriptures. And their unrepentance and unwillingness to believe makes certain their judgment. As John says, he came to his own and his own received him not. Look at number two in your outline, persuasive corruption. Let's start reading in verse 5 through verse 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus is warning the disciples about the leaven of Jewish leaders. So those young people or maybe those who have always purchased their bread in a store, leaven is yeast, okay, that which works in and throughout the dough, expanding it, making it rise. Well, the disciples are preoccupied about their physical needs and the fact that they forgot to bring bread on this trip. They think by mentioning leaven, Jesus is making a veiled reference to the fact that they forgot to bring bread. Jim Boyce, the great 20th century preacher from Philadelphia, in his commentary on this passage, had a movie reference, and I was surprised to see a movie reference from Jim Boyce. Okay? But he, I was even more surprised over which movie he referenced. It wasn't Ben-Hur or Chariots of Fire or something else culturally respectable. It was the 1994 critically acclaimed film, Dumb and Dumber which is his title summary for these first two points in your outline. The Jewish leaders in the first passage and the disciples in this passage, dumb and dumber. He says the Pharisees are unable to understand because they're unwilling to understand, but the disciples have every reason to understand. Jesus wants them to be on guard from the influence or teaching of these Jewish leaders because like yeast or leaven, it can slowly work into your mind, start to influence how you think, and pull you away from the kingdom. Now, we might all wonder how the disciples could miss this, but perhaps you wives and mothers of boys may understand a little bit better because you've seen the impact that hunger can have on men and boys in your family. A lack of food can seriously impact the judgment of males in particular, it would seem. Well, in any case, Jesus says, really? 
You think I'm talking about bread? Were you guys not there earlier when we needed food and had seven basketfuls left over? Do you still not see I can provide for your needs? Do I need to repeat my Sermon on the Mount? Seek first my kingdom and all these other basic needs will be taken care of. You don't need to worry about those things. Now it's interesting. Jesus wants them to grow. He's not going to spoon feed them with truth like he may have done earlier in his ministry. He wants them to grow in their understanding. So instead of just telling them what he means, he stops and just repeats what he said the metaphor, for them to wrestle and think about what he's saying and hopefully grow in their understanding. And sure enough, it says the disciples understood the metaphor. Jesus was warning them about the influence or the teaching of these two Jewish leader groups. Now, what is this teaching they need to be aware of? Okay, because I mentioned earlier, these two groups taught various divergent things on many issues. The commentators are diverse at this point, but I found David Turner to be the most helpful and persuasive. When you think about what these two groups have in common here in the story, and what these two passages, the Dumb and Dumber, if you will, have in common, I think it's best to explain it this way. The Pharisees and Sadducees both refused to follow Jesus because of the impact it would have on their status in this life. In other words, they did not believe, they did not understand Jesus and who he was and what he was doing because they were fixated on the here and now. What are their wants and desires there and now? For them, it was their influence, their power, their status, their religious standing, their pride. Unwilling to give that up, they demanded more signs and missed the kingdom as a result. Similarly, in this story, the disciples are overly fixated on the here and now, namely food. This is Jesus' warning, I think. Beware of the influence that leads you away from the kingdom because of a fixation on here and now. Okay, now an easy target today for this kind of false teaching is the prosperity gospel, right? Obviously fixated on the here and now. Your best life now. Health and wealth now. But there are less overt, more subtle ways We can be influenced. Think of the parable of the soils earlier in Matthew. What choked out the seed that was sown among the thorns? The cares of this world, the cares of here and now, getting stuff, being liked by people, avoiding suffering, seeking pleasure, the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, a fixation on here and now, that's what choked out the seed ultimately resulting in no fruit, apostasy, falling away, unbelief. Beware of this influence of being fixated on the here and now because that influence is persuasive and it's dangerous. It will corrupt your thinking and lead you away from Jesus. Okay, now we come to Peter's confession number three in your outline. Let me start reading in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, the popularity of Jesus is undeniable at this point, but there were many perceptions about who Jesus was. And he poses the question to his disciples, who, what do people think? Hey, what, what, what do the latest Gallup polls say? Well, some people thought he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. That's what Herod thought. Remember back in chapter 14, after he had put John to death, he hears about this miracle worker. John is back, he thought. Many thought Jesus was the Elijah, the prophet that the prophet Malachi spoke of. This would be the forerunner to the Messiah, the role that, ironically, John the Baptist actually played. Other Jewish writings circulating at this time apparently mentioned Jeremiah returning. And some people may have seen the spirit of Jeremiah's preaching and Jesus' teaching. Things like suffering, right? The pending doom for Israel and its leaders. It sounds like Jeremiah. Now, their list isn't exhaustive. They don't report everything in the poll, right? Some people said he was the son of David, remember? Some people said he was a drunk. Some people said he was demon-possessed. Perhaps the disciples were wise not to include those opinions from times where Jesus shot back at someone for what they said. But the point is there's a lot of diversity of views and confusion about Jesus' identity. So Jesus says to them, what about you? What do you say? And the you there is plural. What do you all say? Who do you all think I am? Now, it would be interesting to see this. Like, was there, was there a long, awkward silence? Did they look at each other? Were, were they thinking, is this a test? I mean, what if, we get, what if we get it wrong? We simply don't know because we're not told. What we do know is that ultimately Peter speaks up and he answers correctly. In fact, he hits it out of the park. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Christ, the Greek word for Messiah, the promised son of David that would bring God's kingdom and rule forever. The next, the next title, the son of the living God. This is extraordinary. First of all, they're in Caesarea, where pagans are worshiping all manner of deities. Besides worshiping the emperor, there were temples to gods like Pan, the dancing goats. A culture just exuding worship of dead, pagan, lifeless gods. But Jesus, Peter says, is the son of the one true living God. And Jesus blesses Peter for this profoundly true statement. You are blessed for confessing this truth about my identity, Simon, son of John, or, or Bar-Jonah, the transliteration. Peter is almost certainly saying more than he understands here. As Jesus says next, this is a God-given insight. Okay, this isn't something Peter figured out with human effort or ingenuity. This is, this, the, the heavenly Father is revealing this to Peter. Now, at the beginning, all the disciples had hoped that he was the Messiah. And even now, they don't have a fully Christian understanding of who Jesus was until after his resurrection. But here, in this confession, is a key milestone in their growth of understanding. 
Peter doesn't grasp the, the, the full implications of what he's saying, which in a sense is why he has trouble with the cross, which we'll see next week. But this confession is huge. Now, we've been on this journey together in Matthew's gospel, kingdom life, since last Christmas. And we'll continue, Lord willing, to finish just before Christmas this year. So if we can just come up to the surface of the water to get some air for for just a minute, just acknowledge that this confession we just read is the centerpiece of Matthew's gospel. Okay, almost like, um, allow me to switch the metaphor. We've been climbing up Matthew's mountain, and we've just summited. Okay, up to this point, we've slowly made our way to a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now we start our descent down the mountain. From this point on, we make our way down to the cross. Switching back to the diving metaphor, I invite you down into the water again as we consider number four, the prevailing church. Let's read the rest of our passage starting in verse 18 together. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. Here we come to the rock and his role. If we only had the English translation here, we we may completely miss what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter's name in the spoken language they were using, Aramaic, is Cephas, which is the word for rock. In the written language, Greek, it is Petros, which is the male form of, the, of Petra, rock. So the equivalent in English would be something like Rocky or perhaps Dwayne Johnson's moniker, The Rock. I mean, that's what, that's what we're really dealing with here. So Jesus is using a pun on his name, something like, you are Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, many of you know, especially those of you who are well-versed in church history, know that this is a highly debated passage. And the main reason is that Roman Catholicism teaches that Peter was the first pope. And this role Jesus seems to give Peter is then extended to each successive pope throughout history. Now, in reaction to this, some scholars since Martin Luther and the Reformation have just taken a completely different view, just to avoid all doubt. And they say that the rock upon which Jesus builds his church is not Peter, but rather Peter's confession that we just looked at in the last section. In other words, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the foundation of the church that Jesus builds on. Now, that's a possible reading of this text, but it's definitely not the most straightforward. I think Don Carson is right that without this strong reaction to the papacy idea, Luther understandably was super sensitive to that, It seems pretty clear, however, Jesus is talking about Peter, and hence the pun with his name. Now, to be clear, there's nothing in this passage, nor anywhere else in the Bible, about successors to Peter in some kind of papacy. That's just not there. Again, respectable scholars disagree on what the rock is, but, but I think if we remove that bias about the papacy, by far the most straightforward reading 
is that Peter is the rock and foundation for the church. Now, what does this mean? Okay. First of all, it doesn't mean Peter was infallible in some way. We see in the very next passage next week that he's deceived by Satan, right? Trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And even, even after the ascension, when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, even then he's still, he's still clearly in the wrong when confronted by Paul, as recounted in Galatians 2. So it doesn't mean Peter's never wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying about Peter being a foundation. Nevertheless, it's clear in the first part of Acts that Peter is a foundational figure for the church. He preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as the church in Jerusalem grows exponentially, remember, throughout Judea. He's foundational as the church spreads to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And he's foundational as the church spreads to the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is instrumental in every phase of the church's foundation. And as Jesus articulates in Acts chapter 1, he says the Holy Spirit, in that formative passage for Acts, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. That's basically the redemptive outline for the book of Acts. The church will include first Jews, then Samaritans, half-Jews, then Gentiles, ultimately. And Peter was foundational in every step. That's all this needs to mean. So while we should not overstate Peter's role, we sh I don't think we should understate it either. Jesus built his church the foundational ministry of Peter. And there's no reason to adopt any idea of popes from, what, from coming from Peter because of that. Now, in this verse, because we focus so much on Peter, we may miss something remarkable that Jesus says here. He says, I will build my church. Well, you may say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is. This word church means assembly, and we see it throughout the Greek Old Testament referring to the assembly of the people of God. God's assembly, the people of God. And while the church is something new, certainly, through the coming of Jesus, it's still the people of God, the assembly of God. For the people of God to be the people of Jesus is an astounding claim that he is, in fact, God incarnate. Jesus is clearly affirming his own deity here. Now, what about the rest of what Jesus says? The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Satan and his Forces of evil will not win in their battle against the church. The work of the Lord will, the work the Lord will do, rather, through the proclamation of the gospel, the establishment of churches across the world, try as they might, Satan and his demons will not finally be able to stop what Jesus will do through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost in Jerusalem and what the Holy Spirit has continued to do ever since, even, praise God, at Orchard Bible Church. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says he will give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Best way to understand this, I think, if you remember back to our series, the letters to the outposts, the churches in Revelation, many instances in those letters were... were opening and closing of doors, if you remember. 
as it relates to eternal life. That's what we're seeing here. The opening and closing of doors to eternal life will be done initially by Peter through gospel ministry. Now, in this case, in this instance, Peter's a, sort of a stand-in or representative of all the apostles and the authority they will have. We know this is not limited to Peter. In fact, it's not even limited to the apostles, as we see later in chapter 18, just two chapters later, where it's applied to the church in that passage on church discipline. So what Jesus is saying here is that through gospel proclamation and faithfulness to gospel truths, Peter, the apostles, and ultimately the church have real authority to proclaim how you're included and excluded from God's people, how the, how the door opens and closes to eternal life. Now, they don't have this power or authority in and of themselves, right? Only in connection with gospel truth. In fact, it's interesting, the underlying Greek here is helpful because it actually reads more like this. What you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So the, the activity in heaven actually comes first, which is then ratified on earth. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, in the future, when Peter, the apostles, and later the church proclaim the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, they're opening the doors to eternal life. When people truly believe, when they're converted, they can proclaim with confidence their sins are forgiven because it's already been determined in heaven. Because similarly, when someone rejects the gospel or church discipline, the door's closing. That's a scary thing. Again, the verdict has already been determined in heaven. We see this in the early chapters of Acts with Peter proclaiming the way of salvation, right? Similarly having the confidence of knowing who's excluded because of their unbelief. So let me just summarize. The keys of the kingdom authority, the binding and loosing, opening and closing the door to eternal life is not an authority that Peter or the other apostles will have in and of themselves. It is an authority that comes when they act and speak in line with the gospel. Because when they do, the opening and closing has already been declared in heaven. And the same thing is promised to the church two chapters later. Now, this promise is for the future. Jesus says this will happen, future. Right now, there's way too much confusion about who Jesus is and his ministry, both among the people, but also, as we'll see next week, even among Peter and his disciples. So for now, verse 20, Jesus still commands them to be silent. Okay, with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to lean in a little harder in some application for us today. First, letter A, Christ empowers his church, the most powerful institution in the world. As we've considered, Jesus promises great power to his church, so powerful that the devil and all his dark forces of evil will not prevail against it. And so powerful that the door to eternal life will open and close to people based on its faithful proclamation of the truth. Okay, I want to consider this power from two different perspectives. First, as it relates to our ministry as a church to the world. And second, as it relates to the church's ministry to each of us. Okay, so first, as we preach the word, as Orchard has faithful gospel witness 
As each of you boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to your friends and neighbors, know this. We are equipped with a power that Satan cannot overcome. Okay, normally, we might think of Satan as this powerful force of darkness, which he is. And these forces are attacking us, opposing us, discouraging us, which they do. But consider what Jesus says here, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Well, gates are defensive structures. They're not offensive weapons. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, Satan's coming after you, but take courage, you can't win. He's saying a lot more than that, brothers and sisters. He's saying that by the Spirit of God, we're taking the battle into Satan's domain. We're going into his territory, into hell as it were, to rescue people. And the gates aren't strong enough to keep us out. Through gospel ministry, we're rescuing souls out of the pit of hell, and there's nothing Satan can do to stop us. When you proclaim the gospel, brothers and sisters, you're doing something very powerful. That's why Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's that powerful. It's the power of God that brings salvation to anyone who believes. So take courage. The Christ-empowered church, don't be discouraged by the news. The Christ-empowered church is on the march and has been for millennia. And the powers of hell cannot stop it. They can't keep us out. They can't prevent us from snatching souls out of hell to be redeemed for God through Jesus Christ. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the power of the gospel church. I hope that encourages you this morning. Now, I want to consider this power from another perspective. And that is the church's ministry toward each of us. The church is not just an audience of people. Okay? We're bound together by gospel truths, the Holy Spirit. The truths we see in Peter's confession. Jesus is the Christ. He's Lord. He's the Son of the living God. Those things bind us together. We belong to Jesus. Okay? We don't get to decide what church is. Okay? We belong to him. And if we start living, if I start living, if you start living or thinking or believing in a way that's contrary to him and his lordship, it is up to our brothers and sisters, up to our church to point that out to me, to us, to you. And if we don't finally listen, we shut ourselves outside the door, okay? When we persist in unrepentance, the church declares to us what is loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. We will find ourselves outside the door to eternal life. This is serious. That's a big reason the local church is so important to your spiritual life, so important to my spiritual life. When you're confronted by your brothers and sisters to repent of sin, it is critical that we do so. Because persisting in sin, refusing to repent, results in being outside that door. Until Jesus returns, he's entrusted the keys to the kingdom, to the apostles, and ultimately to successive generations of churches as we see in the rest of the New Testament. This is something 
each of us needs to take very seriously, especially when confronted with our own sin. Church historian Carl Truman was once asked about the most significant events in church history. He said something really interesting. He said, one of the most significant events in the history of the church is when Henry Ford invented the Model T. Because with that new mode of transportation came a cultural shift which had a profound impact on the life of the church. Before then, for millennia, people were typically isolated to one geographical region their whole lives. Christians belonged to one church, often for many generations. When things got hard, they were confronted with their sin. They had to work it out. They had to deal with their sin. They had to repent. That's the Lord's design for our sanctification and the power he's given the church. People had to decide whether Jesus was more important than this thing they wouldn't give up. And they grew through that and were confirmed in their salvation in that. Or they were discipled out of the church, unwilling to repent. All that changed with the automobile. With the reach of geography expanding, more churches were available to people. When things got hard, instead of dealing with the issue, instead of being sanctified through that process and facing sin and repenting, it became easier for people to just drive to another church. Well, we don't even think about that today, do we? I mean, we, we are blessed in our area, for instance, to have many good gospel-preaching churches in our area. Praise God. But one significant downside to that is the temptation. When you're confronted with your own sin, instead of wrestling through that process with your church, which is God's design for your growth and assurance for your salvation, instead you just leave and go somewhere else. You may think you're escaping some inconvenience, but in reality, you just may be closing the door because you are unwilling to repent. You may be short-circuiting the very process the Lord has ordained for the power of his church to have in your life. The Lord isn't fooled. We need to take this power seriously, lest we tragically find ourselves outside the door of eternal life on that day. Finally, letter B, we need to answer Jesus personally. Who do you say I am? Some people said Jesus was a prophet. Now, for many people, that might have been flattering, right? Not for Jesus. The woman at the well perceived he was a prophet, remember? But he showed her much more, didn't he? Nicodemus perceived he was a great teacher, but he showed him much more, didn't he? In some ways, our time is no different than those days. Many people today say Jesus was a great teacher and a virtuous example, but that's all he was. He wasn't the son of God, which always makes me wonder if they've ever even read the Gospels. Because Jesus makes claims to deity in almost, if you understand the text, almost every paragraph, including our passage today. How many good teachers say, eat my flesh, which is real food? How is it a great example to say, I'm the bread of life? How is it a great example to say, no one comes to the Father except through me? That's a great example from a great teacher? Are you kidding me? I hope you wouldn't think I was a great example 
or a great teacher if I said those things. No, just a great teacher is not an option for the intellectually honest person reading the Gospels. Still, there are all kinds of views out there about, Jews, about who Jesus is, aren't they? And there are all kinds of people today, like the Pharisees and Sadducees back then, people who understand what Jesus claimed and have more than sufficient reason to believe, yet they don't because they're caught up in the here and now. For the Pharisees, it was their status, their standing, the respect from the people. It was a lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to. They were unwilling to give that up, finally. For you today, it might be lifestyle as well. Living like you want, doing what you want, being your own Lord, not submitting your life to someone else's authority. Who wants to do that? Depending on how strong that desire, nothing will convince you. The Pharisees would never have sufficient signs from Jesus because they didn't want to believe. It's like many so-called agnostics today. I've had several close relatives that I loved very much who were professed agnostics. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees said, they just needed more evidence. They would tell me, God should make it obvious Make the evidence clear to me. But as R.C. Sproul said, and I told my uncle this once, an agnostic is just an atheist who blames their unbelief on God. An agnostic says it's God's fault I don't believe. He needs to show me more signs from heaven. If he wants me to believe, he needs to show me more evidence. How arrogant. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing except eternal judgment for my sin. The sign of Jonah was the only sign they would get. A resurrected Christ removing all doubt about the one they crucified. At some point, Jesus says enough is enough. Only judgment and condemnation are coming for such people. Don't let that be you. God owes us nothing but in his grace and abundant mercy. He's shown us great love through the offering of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to pay for all your sins and was risen from the dead, overcoming death for any who would come to him and follow him. Put your trust in him that you might have complete forgiveness and eternal life by giving your life to him. Would you do that today? The door of salvation is open by the authority of Jesus Christ. Please come in. Be saved. Peter's confession, think about this, was a God-given insight. It needed to come from outside of him. It's the same with us. Do not turn inward. Understanding who Jesus is does not come by looking inside yourself. Okay? The heart is deceitful. You must look to the Lord. You must look to his word. Only he can give you that understanding. Believe in Jesus and the door to eternal life is opened. Reject it and it remains closed to you. It's not based on how good you are, but on how good Jesus is. And he's so good. Just like the time of the apostles, today there are manifold answers to the question, who is Jesus? Garrett Kell writes, unconvinced Jews believe Jesus was a rogue rabbi who deserved death. 
Muslims believe Jesus is an honored prophet who never died. Mormons believe Jesus became a god in the spirit world. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus was the first of Jehovah's creations. Hindus believe Jesus is one among many gods. Buddhists believe Jesus was a uniquely enlightened teacher. Theological liberals believe Jesus is merely a moral model. But gospel Christians believe Jesus is God's eternal son who truly died for our sins, who physically rose from the grave, who powerfully reigns in glory, who will soon return to dwell with us forever. My friend, there is no more important question because there's no more important person. Who do you say he is? Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the words and person and salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those here who maybe have been demanding more signs, maybe have been unconvinced, unwilling to give up the life they hold dear. May they realize the travesty of closing that door forever. May they turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. And may those of us who are struggling with sin, who are struggling with repentance, may we heed the word. May we turn to you to rescue our souls from eternal death. Father, work by your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. You know what we need. And we ask that you do that very thing for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jesus had just previously fed about 15,000 people, including women and children, with seven loaves and a few fish. They refuse to recognize what should be obvious to them. How many signs do they want? Jesus answers them by pointing this out. They can discern less important things like the weather, but they can't discern this unique time in salvation history. They cannot discern that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. The kingdom promised beforehand had come upon them. Craig Blomberg explains, as clouds move from west to east, sunlight will tint the clouds in the morning, signaling that rain is coming. But in the evening, that same phenomenon suggests the clouds have almost disappeared, bringing good weather. Instead, you may have heard this in a rhyme. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Jesus' point is that they can understand these less important signs But because they're closed to God's work in him, they're unable to perceive the dawning of the kingdom of God. So the only sign left for them is the sign of Jonah. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees earlier in chapter 12. Jonah didn't do any wonders. He just showed up with a message of judgment after three nights in the belly of the fish. Likewise, Jesus will show up in the resurrection after three nights in the belly of the earth, and that will be the definitive sign that he is from God and will judge those who refuse to repent. Nothing would convince them because their heart's desire was so strongly against Jesus. This isn't an intellectual problem. It is a moral one. They will not believe because they do not want to believe. It's the same today with many unbelievers. 
It may mystify us at times when people do not believe, loved ones that will not believe. Jesus was careful to discern the honest seeker with questions versus someone resolute in their unbelief who may ask questions, but they're not asked in good faith because they don't want to believe. Like these groups, they have too much to lose if, in fact, Jesus is Lord. So unless the Lord changes their heart, no evidence will be enough. Davies and Allison say it well, seeing is not believing. If the Sadducees and Pharisees of our story were not persuaded by Jesus, neither would they have been won over by a spectacular sign from heaven. The truth is that one does not see until one believes. So, end of verse 4, Jesus left them and departed. Now, this departing was the final and most important withdrawal of Jesus from Galilee before his final trip south to Jerusalem. Mark adds at this point in his account that Jesus sighed deeply as he departed. As Carson notes, Jesus' withdrawal from this region is not just geographical. It is emotional, and it is judicial. He sighs as he leaves because these are the very people who should have recognized him from their own Hebrew scriptures. And their unrepentance and unwillingness to believe makes certain their judgment. As John says, he came to his own and his own received him not. Look at number two in your outline, persuasive corruption. Let's start reading in verse 5 through verse 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus is warning the disciples about the leaven of Jewish leaders. So those young people or maybe those who have always purchased their bread in a store, leaven is yeast, okay, that which works in and throughout the dough, expanding it, making it rise. Well, the disciples are preoccupied about their physical needs and the fact that they forgot to bring bread on this trip. They think by mentioning leaven, Jesus is making a veiled reference to the fact that they forgot to bring bread. Jim Boyce, the great 20th century preacher from Philadelphia, in his commentary on this passage, had a movie reference, and I was surprised to see a movie reference from Jim Boyce. Okay? But I was even more surprised over which movie he referenced. It wasn't Ben-Hur or Chariots of Fire or something else culturally respectable. It was the 1994 critically acclaimed film, Dumb and Dumber which is his title summary for these first two points in your outline. The Jewish leaders in the first passage and the disciples in this passage, dumb 
and dumber. He says the Pharisees are unable to understand because they're unwilling to understand. But the disciples have every reason to understand. Jesus wants them to be on guard from the influence or teaching of these Jewish leaders because like yeast or leaven, it can slowly work into your mind, start to influence how you think, and pull you away from the kingdom. Now, we might all wonder how the disciples could miss this, but perhaps you wives and mothers of boys may understand a little bit better because you've seen the impact that hunger can have on men and boys in your family. A lack of food can seriously impact the judgment of males in particular, it would seem. Well, in any case, Jesus says, really? You think I'm talking about bread? Were you guys not there earlier when we needed food and had seven basketfuls left over? Do you still not see I can provide for your needs? Do I need to repeat my Sermon on the Mount? Seek first my kingdom and all these other basic needs will be taken care of. You don't need to worry about those things. Now it's interesting. Jesus wants them to grow. Okay, he's not going to spoon feed them with truth like he may have done earlier in his ministry. He wants them to grow in their understanding. So until, instead of just telling them what he means, he stops and just repeats what he said the metaphor, for them to wrestle and think about what he's saying and hopefully grow in their understanding. And sure enough, it says the disciples understood the metaphor. Jesus was warning them about the influence or the teaching of these two Jewish leader groups. Now, what is this teaching they need to be aware of? Okay, because I mentioned earlier, these two groups taught various divergent things on many issues. The commentators are diverse at this point, but I found David Turner to be the most helpful and persuasive. When you think about what these two groups have in common here in this story, and what these two passages, the Dumb and Dumber, if you will, have in common, I think it's best to explain it this way. The Pharisees and Sadducees both refused to follow Jesus because of the impact it would have on their status in this life. Okay, in other words, they did not believe, they did not understand Jesus and who he was and what he was doing because they were fixated on the here and now. Okay, what are their wants and desires there and now? For them, it was their influence, their power, their status, their religious standing, their pride. Unwilling to give that up, they demanded more signs and missed the kingdom as a result. Similarly, in this story, the disciples are overly fixated on the here and now, namely food. This is Jesus' warning, I think. Beware of the influence that leads you away from the kingdom because of a fixation on here and now. Okay, now an easy target today for this kind of false teaching is the prosperity gospel, right? Obviously fixated on the here and now. Your best life now. Health and wealth now. But there are less overt, more subtle ways we can be influenced. Think of the parable of the soils earlier in Matthew. What choked out the seed that was sown among the thorns? The cares of this world, the cares of here and now, getting stuff, being liked by people, avoiding suffering, seeking pleasure, the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, a fixation on here and now, that's what choked out the seed ultimately resulting in no fruit, apostasy, falling away, unbelief. 
Beware of this influence of being fixated on the here and now because that influence is persuasive and it's dangerous. It will corrupt your thinking and lead you away from Jesus. Okay, now we come to Peter's confession number three in your outline. Let me start reading in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, the popularity of Jesus is undeniable at this point, but there were many perceptions about who Jesus was. And he poses the question to his disciples, who, what do people think? Hey, what, what, what do the latest Gallup polls say? Well, some people thought he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. That's what Herod thought. Remember back in chapter 14, after he had put John to death, he hears about this miracle worker. John is back, he thought. Many thought Jesus was the Elijah, the prophet that the prophet Malachi spoke of. This would be the forerunner to the Messiah, the role that, ironically, John the Baptist actually played. Other Jewish writings circulating at this time apparently mentioned Jeremiah returning. And some people may have seen the spirit of Jeremiah's preaching and Jesus' teaching. Things like suffering, right? the pending doom for Israel and its leaders, Sounds like Jeremiah. Now, their list isn't exhaustive. They don't report everything in the poll, right? Some people said he was the son of David, remember? Some people said he was a drunk. Some people said he was demon-possessed. Perhaps the disciples were wise not to include those opinions from times where Jesus shot back at someone for what they said. But the point is there's a lot of diversity of views and confusion about Jesus' identity. So Jesus says to them, what about you? What do you say? And the you there is plural. What do you all say? Who do you all think I am? Now, it would be interesting to see this. Like, was there, was there a long, awkward silence? Did they look at each other? Were, were they thinking, is this a test? I mean, what if we get, what if we get it wrong? We simply don't know because we're not told. What we do know is that ultimately Peter speaks up and he answers correctly. In fact, he hits it out of the park. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Christ, the Greek word for Messiah, the promised son of David that would bring God's kingdom and rule forever. The next, the next title, the son of the living God. This is extraordinary. First of all, they're in Caesarea, okay, where pagans are worshiping all manner of deities. Besides worshiping the emperor, there were temples to gods like Pan, the dancing goats. A culture just exuding worship of dead, pagan, lifeless gods. But Jesus, Peter says, is the son of the one true living God. And Jesus blesses Peter for this profoundly true statement. You are blessed for confessing this truth about my identity. 
Simon, son of John, or, or Bar-Jonah, the transliteration. Peter is almost certainly saying more than he understands here. As Jesus says next, this is a God-given insight. Okay, this isn't something Peter figured out with human effort or ingenuity. This is, this, the, the heavenly Father is revealing this to Peter. Now, at the beginning, all the disciples had hoped that he was the Messiah. And even now, they don't have a fully Christian understanding of who Jesus was until after his resurrection. But here, in this confection, is a key milestone in their growth of understanding. Peter doesn't grasp the, the, the full implications of what he's saying, which in a sense is why he has trouble with the cross, which we'll see next week. But this confession is huge. Now, we've been on this journey together in Matthew's gospel, kingdom life, since last Christmas. And we'll continue, Lord willing, to finish just before Christmas this year. So if we can just come up to the surface of the water to get some air for, for just a minute, just acknowledge that this confession we just read is the centerpiece of Matthew's gospel. Okay, almost like, um, allow me to switch the metaphor. We've been climbing up Matthew's mountain, and we've just summited. Okay, up to this point, we've slowly made our way to a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now we start our descent down the mountain. From this point on, we make our way down to the cross. Switching back to the diving metaphor, I invite you down into the water again as we consider number four, the prevailing church. Let's read the rest of our passage starting in verse 18 together. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you key, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. Here we come to the rock and his role. If we only had the English translation here, we, we may completely miss what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter's name in the spoken language they were using, Aramaic, is Cephas, which is the word for rock. In the written language, Greek, it is Petros, which is the male form of, the, of Petra, rock. So the equivalent in English would be something like Rocky or perhaps Dwayne Johnson's moniker, The Rock. I mean, that's what, that's what we're really dealing with here. So Jesus is using a pun on his name, something like, you are Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, many of you know, especially those of you who are well-versed in church history, know that this is a highly debated passage. And the main reason is that Roman Catholicism teaches that Peter was the first pope. And this role Jesus seems to give Peter is then extended to each successive pope throughout history. Now, in reaction to this, some scholars since Martin Luther and the Reformation have just taken a completely different view, just to avoid all doubt. And they say that the rock upon which Jesus builds his church is not Peter, but rather Peter's confession that we just looked at in the last section. In other words, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the foundation of the church that Jesus builds on. 
Now, that's a possible reading of this text, but it's definitely not the most straightforward. I think Don Carson is right that without this strong reaction to the papacy idea, Luther understandably was super sensitive to that. It seems pretty clear, however, Jesus is talking about Peter, and hence the pun with his name. Now, to be clear, there's nothing in this passage nor anywhere else in the Bible about successors to Peter in some kind of papacy. That's just not there. Again, respectable scholars disagree on what the rock is, but, but I think if we remove that bias about the papacy, by far the most straightforward reading is that Peter is the rock and foundation for the church. Now, what does this mean? Okay. First of all, it doesn't mean Peter was infallible in some way. We see in the very next passage next week that he's deceived by Satan, right, trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Okay, and even, even after the ascension, when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, even then he's still, he's still clearly in the wrong when confronted by Paul, as recounted in Galatians 2. So it doesn't mean Peter's never wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying about Peter being a foundation. Nevertheless, it's clear in the first part of Acts that Peter is a foundational figure for the church. He preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as the church in Jerusalem grows exponentially, remember, throughout Judea. He's foundational as the church spreads to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And he's foundational as the church spreads to the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is instrumental in every phase of the church's foundation. And as Jesus articulates in Acts chapter 1, he says the Holy Spirit, in that formative passage for Acts, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. That's basically the redemptive outline for the book of Acts. The church will include first Jews, then Samaritans, half-Jews, then Gentiles, ultimately. And Peter was foundational in every step. That's all this needs to mean. So while we should not overstate Peter's role, we sh I don't think we should understate it either. Jesus built his church the foundational ministry of Peter. And there's no reason to adopt any idea of popes from, what, from coming from Peter because of that. Now, in this verse, because we focus so much on Peter, we may miss something remarkable that Jesus says here. He says, I will build my church. Well, you may say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is. This word church means assembly, and we see it throughout the Greek Old Testament referring to the assembly of the people of God. God's assembly, the people of God. And while the church is something new, certainly, through the coming of Jesus, it's still the people of God, the assembly of God. For the people of God to be the people of Jesus is an astounding claim that he is, in fact, God incarnate. Jesus is clearly affirming his own deity here. Now, what about the rest of what Jesus says? The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Satan and his forces of evil will not win in their battle against the church. The work of the Lord will, the work the Lord will do, rather, through the proclamation of the gospel, the establishment of churches across the world, try as they might, 
Satan and his demons will not finally be able to stop what Jesus will do through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost in Jerusalem and what the Holy Spirit has continued to do ever since, even, praise God, at Orchard Bible Church. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says he will give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Best way to understand is to think, if you remember back to our series, the, the letters to the outposts, the, the churches in Revelation, many instances in those letters were, were opening and closing of doors, if you remember, as it relates to eternal life. That's what we're seeing here. The opening and closing of doors to eternal life will be done initially by Peter, through gospel ministry. Now, in this case, in this instance, Peter's a, sort of a stand-in or representative of all the apostles and the authority they will have. We know this is not limited to Peter. In fact, it's not even limited to the apostles, as we see later in chapter 18, just two chapters later, where it's applied to the church in that passage on church discipline. So, what Jesus is saying here is that through gospel proclamation and faithfulness to gospel truths, Peter, the apostles, and ultimately the church have real authority to proclaim how you're included and excluded from God's people, how the, how the door opens and closes to eternal life. Now, they don't have this power or authority in and of themselves, right? Only in connection with gospel truth. In fact, it's interesting, the underlying Greek here is helpful because it actually reads more like this. What you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So the, the activity in heaven actually comes first, which is then ratified on earth. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, in the future, when Peter, the apostles, and later the church proclaim the way of salvation... In Jesus Christ, they're opening the doors to eternal life. When people truly believe, when they're converted, they can proclaim with confidence their sins are forgiven because it's already been determined in heaven. Okay, similarly, when someone rejects the gospel or church discipline, the door's closing. That's a scary thing. Again, the verdict has already been determined in heaven. We see this in the early chapters of Acts with Peter proclaiming the way of salvation, right? Similarly having the confidence of knowing who's excluded because of their unbelief. So let me just summarize. The keys of the kingdom authority, the binding and loosing, opening and closing the door to eternal life is not an authority that Peter or the other apostles will have in and of themselves, it is an authority that comes when they act and speak in line with the gospel. Because when they do, the opening and closing has already been declared in heaven. And the same thing is promised to the church two chapters later. Now, this promise is for the future. Jesus says this will happen, future. Right now, there's way too much confusion about who Jesus is and his ministry, both among the people, but also, as we'll see next week, even among Peter and his disciples. So for now, verse 20, Jesus still commands them to be silent. Okay, with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to lean in a little harder in some application for us today. First, letter A, Christ empowers his church, the most powerful institution in the world. 
As we've considered, Jesus promises great power to his church, so powerful that the devil and all his dark forces of evil will not prevail against it, and so powerful that the door to eternal life will open and close to people based on its faithful proclamation of the truth. Okay, I want to consider this power from two different perspectives. First, as it relates to our ministry as a church to the world. And second, as it relates to the church's ministry to each of us. Okay, so first, as we preach the word, as Orchard has faithful gospel witness, as each of you boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to your friends and neighbors, know this. We are equipped with a power that Satan cannot overcome. Okay, normally, we might think of Satan as this powerful force of darkness, which he is. And these forces are attacking us, opposing us, discouraging us, which they do. But consider what Jesus says here, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Well, gates are defensive Structures. They're not offensive weapons. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, Satan's coming after you, but take courage, you can't win. He's saying a lot more than that, brothers and sisters. He's saying that by the Spirit of God, we're taking the battle into Satan's domain. We're going into his territory, into hell, as it were, to rescue people. And the gates aren't strong enough to keep us out. Through gospel ministry, we're rescuing souls out of the pit of hell, and there's nothing Satan can do to stop us. When you proclaim the gospel, brothers and sisters, you're doing something very powerful. That's why Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's that powerful. It's the power of God that brings salvation to anyone who believes. So take courage. The Christ-empowered church, don't be discouraged by the news. The Christ-empowered church is on the march and has been for millennia, and the powers of hell cannot stop it. They can't keep us out. They can't prevent us from snatching souls out of hell to be redeemed for God through Jesus Christ. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the power of the gospel church. I hope that encourages you this morning. Now, I want to consider this power from another perspective. And that is the church's ministry toward each of us. The church is not just an audience of people. Okay? We're bound together by gospel truths, the Holy Spirit. The truths we see in Peter's confession. Jesus is the Christ. He's Lord. He's the son of the living God. Those things bind us together. We belong to Jesus. We don't get to decide what church is. We belong to him. And if we start living, if I start living, if you start living or thinking or believing in a way that's contrary to him and his lordship, it is up to our brothers and sisters, up to our church to point that out to me, to us, to you. And if we don't finally listen, we shut ourselves outside the door, okay? When we persist in unrepentance, the church declares to us what is loosed on earth will have been loosed 
in heaven. We will find ourselves outside the door to eternal life. This is serious. That's a big reason the local church is so important to your spiritual life, so important to my spiritual life. When you're confronted by your brothers and sisters to repent of sin, it is critical that we do so. Because persisting in sin, refusing to repent, results in being outside that door until Jesus returns. He's entrusted the keys to the kingdom, to the apostles, and ultimately to successive generations of churches as we see in the rest of the New Testament. This is something each of us needs to take very seriously, especially when confronted with our own sin. Church historian Carl Truman was once asked about the most significant events in church history. He said something really interesting. He said, one of the most significant events in the history of the church is when Henry Ford invented the Model T. Because with that new mode of transportation came a cultural shift which had a profound impact on the life of the church. Before then, for millennia, People were typically isolated to one geographical region their whole lives. Christians belonged to one church, often for many generations. When things got hard, they were confronted with their sin. They had to work it out. They had to deal with their sin. They had to repent. That's the Lord's design for our sanctification and the power he's given the church. People had to decide whether Jesus was more important than this thing they wouldn't give up. And they grew through that and were confirmed in their salvation in that. Or they were discipled out of the church, unwilling to repent. All that changed with the automobile. With the reach of geography expanding, more churches were available to people. When things got hard, instead of dealing with the issue, instead of being sanctified through that process and facing sin and repenting, it became easier for people to just drive to another church. Well, we don't even think about that today, do we? I mean, we, we are blessed in our area, for instance, to have many good gospel-preaching churches in our area. Praise God. But one significant downside to that is the temptation. When you're confronted with your own sin, instead of wrestling through that process with your church, which is God's design for your growth and assurance for your salvation... Instead, you just leave and go somewhere else. You may think you're escaping some inconvenience, but in reality, you just may be closing the door because you are unwilling to repent. You may be short-circuiting the very process the Lord has ordained for the power of his church to have in your life. The Lord isn't fooled. We need to take this power seriously, lest we tragically find ourselves outside the door of eternal life on that day. Finally, letter B, we need to answer Jesus personally. Who do you say I am? Some people said Jesus was a prophet. Now, for many people, that might have been flattering, right? Not for Jesus. The woman at the well perceived he was a prophet, remember? But he showed her much more, didn't he? Nicodemus perceived he was a great teacher, but he showed him much more, didn't he? In some ways, our time is no different than those days. Many people today say Jesus was a great teacher and a virtuous example, but that's all he was. He wasn't the son of God. 
which always makes me wonder if they've ever even read the Gospels. Because Jesus makes claims to deity in almost, if you understand the text, almost every paragraph, including our passage today. How many good teachers say, eat my flesh, which is real food? How is it a great example to say, I'm the bread of life? How is it a great example to say, no one comes to the Father except through me? That's a great example from a great teacher. Are you kidding me? I hope you wouldn't think I was a great example or a great teacher if I said those things. No. Just the great teacher is not an option for the intellectually honest person reading the Gospels. Still, there are all kinds of views out there about, Jews, about who Jesus is, aren't they? And there are all kinds of people today, like the Pharisees and Sadducees back then, people who understand what Jesus claimed and have more than sufficient reason to believe, yet they don't because they're caught up in the here and now. For the Pharisees, it was their status, their standing, the respect from the people. It was a lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to. They were unwilling to give that up, finally. For you today, it might be lifestyle as well. Living like you want, doing what you want, being your own Lord, not submitting your life to someone else's authority. Who wants to do that? Depending on how strong that desire, nothing will convince you. The Pharisees would never have sufficient signs from Jesus because they didn't want to believe. It's like many so-called agnostics today. I've had several close relatives that I loved very much who were professed agnostics. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees said, they just needed more evidence. They would tell me, God should make it obvious. Make the evidence clear to me. But as R.C. Sproul said, and I told my uncle this once, an agnostic is just an atheist who blames their unbelief on God. An agnostic says it's God's fault I don't believe. He needs to show me more signs from heaven. If he wants me to believe, he needs to show me more evidence. How arrogant. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing except eternal judgment for my sin. The sign of Jonah was the only sign they would get. A resurrected Christ removing all doubt about the one they crucified. At some point, Jesus says enough is enough. Only judgment and condemnation are coming for such people. Don't let that be you. God owes us nothing but in his grace and abundant mercy. He's shown us great love through the offering of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to pay for all your sins and was risen from the dead, overcoming death for any who would come to him and follow him. Put your trust in him that you might have complete forgiveness and eternal life by giving your life to him. Would you do that today? The door of salvation is open by the authority of Jesus Christ. Please come in. Be saved. Peter's confession, think about this, was a God-given insight. It needed to come from outside of him. It's the same with us. Do not turn inward. Understanding who Jesus is does not come by looking inside yourself. Okay? The heart is deceitful. 
You must look to the Lord. You must look to his word. Only he can give you that understanding. Believe in Jesus and the door to eternal life is opened. Reject it and it remains closed to you. It's not based on how good you are, but on how good Jesus is. And he's so good. Just like the time of the apostles, today there are manifold answers to the question, who is Jesus? Garrett Kell writes, unconvinced Jews believe Jesus was a rogue rabbi who deserved death. Muslims believe Jesus is an honored prophet who never died. Mormons believe Jesus became a god in the spirit world. Jehovah's Witness believe Jesus was the first of Jehovah's creations. Hindus believe Jesus is one among many gods. Buddhists believe Jesus was a uniquely enlightened teacher. Theological liberals believe Jesus is merely a moral model. But gospel Christians believe Jesus is God's eternal son who truly died for our sins, who physically rose from the grave, who powerfully reigns in glory, who will soon return to dwell with us forever. My friend, there is no more important question because there's no more important person. Who do you say he is? Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the words and person and salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those here who maybe have been demanding more signs, maybe have been unconvinced, unwilling to give up the life they hold dear. May they realize the travesty of closing that door forever. May they turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. And may those of us who are struggling with sin, who are struggling with repentance, may we heed the word. May we turn to you to rescue our souls from eternal death. Father, work by your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. You know what we need. And we ask that you do that very thing for Jesus' sake. Amen.